and we want to continue our study. Uh, this morning's class is called uh, Christianity and the Stranger. So if you remember, if you were here last week, what we did was took a look at, it was a brief overview too, uh, Old Testament, and we kind of got into the New Testament, and we're trying to um, show sort of a trajectory that, that the scriptures offer in the way of what does it mean to welcome the stranger, and how has that been a part of God's narrative. And I'll say uh, in the beginning that we don't want to uh, proof text this. This is a really easy topic in, a, in the sense of going to the Bible and finding out what it what it says. This is not stem cell research. This is, this is uh, not technology and, and its effect on faith in 21st century America. This is really simple. And so our, our work has been easy in terms of saying, here's what the Bible says about the, about the stranger. And this is what the Christian response is. Um, we've been really careful not to talk about um, our feelings on immigration policy in America in 2016, because that's a debatable issue, right? That, there's many ways that we could land on that particular issue. What we've tried to do is say, here's what a Christian, uh, how a Christian might respond in 2016. Here's what the Bible says about that. Here's our involvement. Here's what it might look like. Here's what Jesus would say. And so when you slice it down to that topic, I think we're probably all in agreement in this room, maybe with some minor variations, but this is an issue that's so uh, clearly close to the heart of God uh, that it's, it's rather easy to talk about the theology and the things that underpin this topic when it comes to what does Jesus say, what is, what is a Christian uh, response in 2016. So we'll talk about policy uh, in a couple of weeks, and as I said, it's a really debatable topic and lots of ways we could land... <coughs> Lisa Sherman Nicholas works um, with, with an agency that works for pro-immigration law, and she's going to share a lot about, about um, how we might feel about that, and so she'll guide us in that week. But I want to stick to this, um, oops, I want to stick to this approach, and I think um, as we consider how to respond in 2016, maybe our mistake in the American political environment is to dive into that particular debate from an American political perspective without first doing the necessary work as a Christian and figuring out what our thinking might be as a Christian, as a Jesus person. So I think if we can approach it that way and, and understand what it is the Bible is saying, what is the biblical narrative saying in this conversation, then we could enter the American political discussion more informed, um, more aware of what of what the Judeo-Christian uh, history has been. So uh, a quick review and then we'll get into um, uh, the, the new stuff. If, I think most of y'all have been to this class before. I, don't, I recognize maybe one or two new faces, but this is our simple goal. We just want to raise a re awareness, particularly about the Syrian refugee crisis. That's been the, the topic over the last four to five years with their civil war. We want to cultivate compassion as, as um, Christians. We believe that if we're going to respond to this crisis, it really has to be rooted in compassion. These are families. These are individuals and um, mothers and, and dads and people in need that, that we've talked about over the last several weeks. And uh, we want to be moved and, and pull that conversation out of the abstract. You know, this is, it's really easy to, to talk about them over there and that mess over there and use those third person pronouns. But these are real people that, that are, are made in the image of God. I'm really excited about training volunteers. This is a great opportunity. And uh, one thing that we've been um, talking about, Roger and I and uh, some of us, is 
we probably need to, and we need your help, get the word out about those last three weeks of this class. Because even if a person hasn't been a part of the class, we'd love to invite everyone in for those last three weeks because at the end of this uh, semester, we're going to send out certified volunteers, certified within World Relief, and they're, uh, that's going to help us mobilize 20, 30, 40 other people into um, helping folks here in Nashville. And so we want to uh, use that as a great opportunity to, to train people. We've talked about the refugee camps that UNHCR and other non-governmental organizations operate. They look a lot like this. It's heartbreaking. Thousands upon thousands of people living in temporary dwellings. We've talked about the perilous journey that um, many refugees are facing in their escape out of that region. And the central Mediterranean route being the most risky. A black market has emerged. Smugglers are, are using um, ill-equipped vessels. Uh, giving them just enough gas to get out into international waters and they're adrift for days sometimes uh, hoping that someone will discover them. So really treacherous journey going to great lengths to, to preserve their safety, their family, their children. Um, we've, we've been very careful to say that this is the group, the subset that we're talking about. These are uh, refugees is a legal designation and it's really really important no matter who you're talking to and your circles of influence to help people understand that don't fall victim to a lot of the propaganda that is out there that talks about immigrants very broadly because there there are people living illegally in countries around the world and that's one discussion and it's a tough discussion um, but we're talking about people who have been declared uh, legal refugees in the site of of the UN and so this is these are people who have been granted, um, particularly in the American discussion, people have been granted um, access to, to our system, so to speak, in our, in our, our, um, our world, our, our cities. Um, Roger did a great job last week at beginning the discussion about Old Testament, um, the Old Testament narrative. What was the Jewish perspective? And I'm not going to reread this, but, you know, essentially this quote from theologian Orlando Espen was talking about the frequency that this uh, Hebrew word was used. And transliterated, it's called ger, and 92 times it appears in the Old Testament. And so over and over again, there's this discussion in the Jewish tradition about the stranger, about the alien, about the foreigner living among us. And over and over again, this uh, in the form of commands and other references is, is repeated in, in the Old Testament scriptures. And so um, second only to worshiping one God. And so this is something that's really clearly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, just near the heart of God and, uh, and draws attention to um, this command that we see in Leviticus. When, when an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress or mistreat that person. Um, the one who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen uh, among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. And here's the whole basis for this in terms of Jewish history is it was, you were there. You, you were once there. You know, if there's anybody that can relate to this group, it's you, children of Israel, because you were once in Egypt and you escaped and you were brought out and you were sort of this nomad that had no place of its own. And so, um, wisely, the writers connect with this piece of their history. And that narrative is just replayed over and over again throughout Jewish scripture. 
And then what we'll see here as we transition to the New Testament is not only were the early writers, uh, Paul and Peter and, and Jesus as he taught and preached, they, they knew how to sort of sew in that narrative and bring that narrative along to the Gentile world. And so we'll talk about that again this morning. Um, here's some of the, the, the stories that, that Roger talked about last week. So many um, migrants, and, and this was just, again, a, a, a very integral piece of the story of the Jewish people. We talked about the New Testament. I, I raced through a lot of this last week, so I want to slow down a little bit on some of the New Testament thoughts again this week. We talked about the idea of incarnation. Um, Paul writes to the church in, in Philippi, uh, this is a song. He reminds them, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And so you see this concept where we get our class title is that Jesus himself chose to step into the, the um, identity of a refugee, of a person who was in forced migration, um, fled to Egypt with his parents and was protected there from, from Herod. And so probably no coincidence that he um, could relate to the human condition in this, in this way, along with many other ways that he, he experienced. Uh, the Hebrew writer had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be merciful and faithful high priest. This, this message is really consistent in Hebrew, the Hebrew in the Hebrew letter. Uh, just that, that he could relate, that he could sympathize with, with the human condition in so many different ways because of his experience, his incarnation, uh, in, in his fleshly experience. Here again in Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are. Um, we talked about this notion of judgment, and, and this is just one of those, um, not necessarily a, uh, as direct as Luke chapter 10, which we'll talk about the Good Samaritan this morning. But um, certainly a, a pretty solid underscoring of, hey, Jesus people, you need to care about the stranger. You need to care about um, the people I care about. And so we, we see this list, um, this sort of um, end times vision that, that is revealed in Matthew 25. There's hungry, there's naked, there's thirsty, there's stranger. And the, the encouragement that Jesus gives in his teaching is you need to care about these people. And there's the separation of goats and sheep, and, and the sheep care about the stranger. Um, so I, th I think that really underscored the story. Um, Matthew, I, I think, is written predominantly to the Jewish audience. Um, they would have understood this. They would have understood the, the, the historical narrative that, that was in play there. Um, and then we talked about this last week. There's this idea of new kingdom. So not only does, uh, not only do these early writers and Jesus teaching and preaching sort of draw in this Jewish historical narrative, but they begin to say, um, so not only were you, were you foreigners in a land, you were, you were under slavery, very physical conversation, right? This was physical history. You were once in Egypt, now you're not. They also started bringing in this idea of um, end times. And so there's this futuristic, hey, this is what's coming. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. You're just passing through. Uh, this is all temporary. And so there's this other layer of um, you are 
you are sojourners. You're traveling through. This is just temporary. So you kind of see those two themes uh, being played out. As I said, not only sort of bringing along that Jewish narrative, but then there's this, this new concept. There's, there's citizen, your citizenship is elsewhere. You're not, even a, you're not even a citizen really here anymore on this earth, but it's this new kingdom. Um, Galatians 3, what a great verse and, and used um, in, a, in other um, discussions outside the refugee context, but uh, there's, there, there's just not a separation anymore. In this kingdom, there is not Jew or Greek. There's not nationality. There's not gender. All these things are fading away, and our, our trajectory is sort of this end goal, this coming kingdom that is, is now but not yet. Um, and I think that's really helpful for understanding um, our response, right? That, that refugees um, are, if they're not already believers in, in Jesus, they, they too can have the citizenship. And so we'll talk about what it means to be uh, on mission <clears throat> in later weeks. You know, what does it mean to reach out and share the story of Jesus with, with those who we might come in contact that are not already in our tradition? So uh, lots, of, lots of ways we could talk about this. Um, and I know I'm going fast. I'm trying to get to the Good Samaritan, which is really the meat of today. Uh, Ephesians 2, another reminder from Paul that, um, that we're aliens, that we're strangers, uh, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Um, again, in Philippians, our citizenship in, is in heaven, uh, and it's from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Peter, since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Uh, I found some great history in some of the early Christian writings and, it, and really just to serve as an indication of how commonplace, how accepted, how normal it was for the early church to care for the stranger. I want to share some of those things. Um, a, given their political uh, location in the Roman Empire, it's not surprising that stranger status would be a primary way Christians understood themselves and their place in the world. So there's that physical, we don't belong here. We're, we're, you know, we're under Roman rule. Uh, we're, we're kind of just passing through this place, um, not in control of our, own, of our own destiny. Many early Christian texts insist that Christians understood themselves first uh, as strangers in order to extend hospitality in the world. So think about that for just a second. So in order to extend hospitality, they understood that this is not my place. I don't own this place, right? So, so listen to this. Um, this is sometimes accomplished through the deliberate confusion of the roles of host and guest, particularly in stories about hospitality, hospitality offered. So, for example, um, Palladius tells the story of Elias, a solitary ascetic who lived near a road. When a large group of visitors stopped by looking for refreshment, Elias was eager to offer hospitality, but only had three loaves of bread to feed them all. Miraculously, two loaves were plenty to fill all 20 guests, and the loaf was left, uh, that was left fed Elias for 25 days. Elias, the host, became the recipient of abundance as a result of his visitors. This reversal of roles is, common, is a common theme in early Christian stories of hospitality. I thought that was really interesting. 
Uh, early Christians express a profound appreciation for two initial movements of hospitality. First, we recognize our own status as strangers. Uh, second, we recognize the stranger as Christ himself. Strangers offer an opportunity to receive Christ and participate in God's grace. Hospitality becomes more than private virtue. It is a means of grace whereby we are received into the household of God, just as we receive others to our own lives and communities. This dynamic movement of grace permeated the practice of hospitality. And then last one, uh, the epistle of Diognetius expressed the, the paradox of Christian identity. Uh, he says, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each of them, has determined and following the customs of the locals in respect of, to clothing, food, and the rest of their regular daily life, they, Christians, display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. Uh, so I thought those were, um, were great examples, kind of a glimpse into the early church who wrote uh, extensively about what it meant to be a sojourner, what it meant to be an alien. And uh, as you see, it drew upon that, not only the Jewish narrative that was longstanding, but also this idea that, hey, there's a coming kingdom, and um, I want to participate in that kingdom, and I want to um, not, not be a citizen here first, but be a citizen there first. Okay, that was a lot. Um, this is what I really want to get to. So Luke chapter 10, um, Jesus is speaking with a lawyer. Let me say, first of all, I meant to reiterate this. Surveys show that just 12% of American evangelicals said that they think about immigration issues primarily from the perspective of the Bible. 12%. Um, and so this is kind of the framework for this morning's class. When asked what most influenced their thinking on this topic, the Bible, the local church, and national Christian leaders combined were reported less often than the media. And so what that tells us is that as Christians, as Jesus people, we come to the American political discussion about immigration with thoughts and opinions and uh, ideas that are not being informed by or motivated by or founded in the Bible. And that's a, that's a problem. So I hope what you leave with in this class is not me or Roger telling you what to think about the American political discussion. That, you're adults. That's up to you. But I think we can all work on what does the Bible say about this issue. And then as informed Jesus people, you can then go and ex experience and participate in the American political discussion as influencers, as disciples of Jesus. Does that make sense? I wish we approached all, um, all of those debates and discussions that way, but we just don't. And so... Uh, and it really doesn't take long on Twitter and Facebook to understand that many Christians out there enter this discussion about refugees, for instance, uh, really uninformed about what Jesus is really teaching. Um, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm living in an ideal world, but I, I think as I look at Luke chapter 10, 
I can confidently walk away from that and these other passages that we're sharing and say that there is a mandate for loving the refugee as, as described in the Bible. And mandate's a strong word. Now, I'm sure that there's people who might could argue that, and, and I'm, open to hear, I'm open to hear that. But um, now, what you do with that mandate, how you enter the American political discussion is a whole other topic. But in terms of what Christians walk away with, especially at the end of Luke 10, um, it's God cares about refugees. God cares about the immigrant. And regardless of how they might have arrived or uh, what they're doing here in terms of the American political context, that, that's, that's another discussion. But um, I, I think what's really clear from Luke chapter 10 is that um, Jesus cares about the foreigner. So here we go. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what's written in the law? Uh, what do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you will live. He just couldn't, he just couldn't walk away, could he? He had to, he had to say, well, but what? Uh, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Uh, then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out some money, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So give me your thoughts. I'd love to hear your, um, your take, especially in reading this, uh, you know, in light of the refugee discussion. Give me, give me some of your thoughts. What does it say to us? Good thought. What else? Well, as a healthcare person, I, I mean, he took care of his health needs. Yeah. Basics. Yeah. What else? If he was dumping on the priest and the Levite, it says that people back back then didn't read the sacred text very well about how to treat refugees either. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently, apparently they weren't listening to the the story either. Yeah, it's a good thought. That's to build on that. Yeah, the, the fact that he picked a Samaritan, you know, that's well documented that that was a big yeah right uh, because the Samaritan was the one who was not right yeah um, in those days. But and and that is also back to your point about Christians don't look at this from necessarily a biblical standpoint. 
can't get, you, you can't find excuses. You can find excuses not to get involved. Yeah. You can find excuses, perfectly well-meaning perhaps, to not do something. Yeah. Good thoughts. What else? Constant care. I love, I just finished actually reading a guy's commentary on this, uh, Kent Bailey. Uh, the beauty of this was that Jesus is taking the accepted political thought. Everyone would look and say the priest and Levi were completely right when they did this. Yeah. Because the guy's stripped, so you don't know if he's Jew or is he Samaritan. Mm hmm. And so, you know, we take care of our own. Mm -hmm. And so you got the priest and Levi going down the road. And it's like, hey, I don't know if he's one of mine or not. So I'm not taking a chance because, you know, because if I'm not a priest, I touch him, I'm unclean. Mm -hmm. Which means, by the way, I have to go back to Jerusalem to get clean again. Yeah. I'm going home. Yeah. The Levite, same deal. And, you know, Jesus is, because, you know, that's how everyone, that's how the Lord would interpret this. Is those guys are totally right. Yeah. They are right. And then Jesus goes, no, wait a minute takes that and just twists it up, turns it 180 and says, no, the guys you think are right are wrong. Mm -hmm. And then the guy you think is wrong, the Samaritan, is right. Yeah. And so he just flips everything over, which when we think about all our, how we deal with people in poverty, how you deal with immigrants, you know, it's really easy to get into that. They're not, they're not one of us. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I'm good for keeping. You know, I'm all about keeping one of us safe and out of poverty. I'm not sure about the immigrant. Yeah. What do you think? Um, yeah, as you as you spoke there, it it dawned on me that what do you think he's saying to the lawyer? Go and do what? Likewise. No, that, the phrase he was moved with pity is significant. Yeah. Yeah. So be be merciful as this guy was. Is that is that what we're supposed to duplicate? Yeah. I think it's significant that it talks about how the other two passed by on the other side, but the Samaritan came near to him. Yeah. And he saw him. Yeah. And that's when he was moved. And I think that's the one of the biggest problems is that we don't come near enough to the refugee and we don't. It's just easy, easier not to have compassion when they're over there. Mm -hmm. And you can even still, you know, you can say, well, I care for them and I hope the best for them. And, but until you actually are in a relationship and you come near to them, um, you're just not as likely to be moved. Yeah. Good thought. I, I've heard it said, and I don't know if this is true or not, kind of the thing, is that, is that to some degree, um, He's also kind of leaving open that this guy may have taken a risk on this road, and it might be easy to say, well, that stuff is self-inflicted. We can't help with that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know if that's reading too much in it. It probably is. But Good thought. Yeah. Other thoughts? This is an easy out. So I, I want to brag on some of the folks here at Otter Creek. Um, when we 
began to partner with World Relief, um, and there's many ways to get involved, you'll find out, because you know, all of our lives are different, all of our stations in life are different, and um, we tend to use those sometimes to our advantage and to wiggle out of things that are, are clearly our responsibility. But what I love about War Relief is that they have given so many entry points. There's so many different ways you can help uh, and, and be involved and do something. Um, I think that's what you'll find in the training session. But some of the members here have formed what's called Good Neighbor Teams. And not everybody has to be on a Good Neighbor Team, but it's one of the ways that you can serve. And a Good Neighbor Team simply adopts a family, so to speak. And um, so we have two of those Good Neighbor Teams working right now. One of the families has adopted a family from Syria. And the other one has adopted a family from Iraq. And uh, I have the privilege of being on the, the team that works with the Iraqi family. And um, as Jenny said, once you learn their names and you draw near to them and you see that they're so much like us, that it's no longer they, right? It's Raid and Zena. I mean, they're my friends now. And I know their kids. And I know their ages. I know where they are in their English learning you know, level. I, you know, you're just once you're in their life, it's just these are people just like you and me that love their kids, and you know what he's concerned about, um, which school they're in. Even as a refugee, he's already picked up on the fact that some schools are better than others, and it just points to the fact that they have this many of the same concerns that you and I have. Um, I'm excited to say he just got a job. He's working hard to, towards self-sufficiency here in our culture. It's just such a beautiful thing to watch this family just fight for themselves and to, to earn money for themselves and to support their kids and see their kids excel. And um, Yeah, it's just no longer abstract. And, and uh, I really pray that opportunity for you guys because if you'll go through the training at the end, uh, you, you'll be in close proximity with those folks one way or the other through Good Neighbor Team maybe that you start or just some other service opportunity that you'll find uh, through World Relief. But yeah, that is critical, just, just coming near and just giving it a chance. And before long, you have a friend. Uh, and then, uh, you know, as with any of your friends, they become people you care about. I mean, you, you want to see them find a good job. And um, you want to see them uh, have help their kids um, succeed. Other thoughts in this passage? What, what else is being said here? Um, how can we use this, this story to, to relate to, to our modern-day crisis? Samaritan disadvantaged himself significantly. He put him on his own animal. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not like he was this phenomenally wealthy guy that said, I oh, just throw him one of the camels in the back and we'll take him. <laughs> I mean, that meant the Samaritan walked to the end. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, as opposed to the priest and Levi who are definitely riding. Yeah. You know, the Samaritan's, he's having to put himself out to the point that he's going to spend however many miles that was. Mm -hmm. Not a, not a small amount. Yeah. Walking. Yeah, as I think about uh, particularly Matthew 25 and the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the stranger, um, on my lazy, non-spirit-led days, all those people are just really big inconveniences, aren't they? It's just an interruption to my schedule and my time. And, um, you know, I work here in benevolence. I mean, I, I, I run what is the church's benevolence effort. And so I get calls, Brittany knows, a lot of phone calls. And um, it's, it takes time to stop what you're doing and to, because um, I have many other responsibilities. 
And so it takes, and I'm paid for this, right? So I'm, I, I don't want to glass over the fact that, that you guys who are not necessarily employed by a church to stop and put someone on your own animal and take them to the hotel and pay for their stay or their health care, that's a big inconvenience. And I think that at the heart of, of um, this passage for us is just what it means for our day. I mean, this is a big cost that we're being asked to assume here uh, because I think, you know, financially, we'd probably love to just be able to write a check and be done, but to put them on our own animal and walk him, like walk, right? All these things point to inconvenience and a huge interruption in our day. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't, yeah. Wouldn't the innkeeper be tempted to take advantage yeah. of that? Wouldn't anybody be tempted to take advantage of that? To yeah. spend more liberally or, or <coughs> overstay what you had spent. Mm-hmm. And I guess it shows a detachment of the Samaritan from his worldly possessions. And we can, I'm not saying that, that we don't, you know, be responsible. But there's a difference between being responsible with your tithing and being exacting. And yeah. if you're exacting with it, that can become a whole time, uh, <coughs> a huge time consumer of its own. So he yeah. decided to practice some faith even in the yeah. I- even in the innkeeper. And if the innkeeper took advantage of it, so be it. Yeah. He was and, okay with it. And, and, I've, and I've looked at it the other way that I mean, this guy was committed enough to sell the innkeeper or just trusted him. Yeah. Till I come back, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm like, okay, he must have been pretty committed. It must have been believable, yeah. right? The innkeeper. The innkeeper bought his story and thought he would come back. Yeah. There's a fascinating psychological study that was done, I think, in the 60s, where they took the, um, students of theology who had just been Yes. And they set up a study so the student <coughs> comes to an office and he is asked to deliver a transcript or something to somebody. But the variable is some of them are told, you know, just no rush, get it there within the next hour or so. Others are said, please get this here really quickly. If they're waiting on it, it's urgent. And as they leave, in their path is a man in Oh, yeah, yeah. And the variable, I'm sorry, the variable is both some have been studying this and some have not. Some are told to go quickly and some are told not. Whether or not they had been studying the parable didn't make much difference in their response. But how much time there was made a huge difference. So if they told hurry, people are waiting on this, they were not likely to stop. Right. They were much more likely to stop if they thought they had more time. And that is very indicting to yeah. Schedule and I've got this commitment. Yeah. And I've got to do this. And <coughs> you're right; it just disrupts. Yeah. It's inconvenient. Yeah. Well, I, I assume that study is an American one. Yes, it's, it is. Yeah, it's this culture, which you know I think that's really relevant to to us. This this draw near to him and take your time, put him on your own animal. It speaks to our culture because we man we are are structured and ready to go. Well, and I was hung up on you know it says love your neighbor as yourself, and he asked us to justify. Who's my neighbor? 
I kind of think you asked the wrong question because it says love your neighbor as yourself. And so who are you? And if you go back to you know what you're talking about in the Old Testament, you are the stranger. You are the person who has been shown mercy. And from that, I think, should come an attitude of compassion and mercy for other people. Yeah. And I think it's possible Jesus wanted him to recognize himself as the stranger, as the person who has been hurt or has been helped or has been shown mercy. Yeah. To be able to say, like, that's who I am. And if I, in those situations, I have been shown that mercy, therefore I should show it to someone yeah. else. Yeah, that's great. I think if we go back to those two sort of undergirding principles, for the Jew, it, this is our story. This is my personal, physical, tangible story. For the Gentile, it's, I, I don't even live here. I, this is not my home. I'm, my home is here. And um, Laura said something that made me think of, you know, in terms of giving up your finances, giving up your daily schedule. All those things are not mine because I belong to this kingdom. It, you know, so there's those two principles, I think, are, are really... Um, pivotal for for shaping our response in this way if we have those understandings in other words um, and they're working in our minds it's certainly going to shape our approach well I can't believe we're running out of time but I need to move on I, I do as I said I don't think this term mandate is too strong um, this is this is written by Matthew Sorens uh, who is uh, the director of world relief the application of the current refugee crisis is clear by Jesus' standard, the refugee, whether from Syria, Somalia, or Burma, living one mile or 10,000 miles from us, whether Christian, Muslim, or Buddhist, atheist, whatever else might distinguish them, is our neighbor. The command of Jesus is to love them. That there may be a risk or cost involved is not relevant to the mandate of love. And I think this speaks to that, that notion that this, this interruption, my finances, the blank check that he writes the innkeeper, all those are, are somewhat irrelevant to the discussion. Um, yeah, as I said, of course, we haven't even begun to talk about the implications of mission and, you know, just that mandate. You know, what about that? Um, for so many who are promoting the Islamophobia and the many other things that have to do with economy and jobs and the impact of refugees being resettled in America, um, all that aside, what about our understanding as Christians that if they are not, in fact, uh, disciples of Jesus, is there a mission there? Is there a calling there or a mandate there? We'll work, we'll work with that in a couple of weeks. Um, next week is Do Not Be Afraid. So we'll talk a good bit more about, the, um, about Islamophobia and some of the propaganda that you see that, that really cripples us and, 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 and it scares us, I guess. Uh, it scares our culture um, because we do immediately kind of rush into the American view of things and we consider economy and impact on jobs and impact on our societies, our culture, and our cities. So all those uh, fears come into play and we want to deal with some of those. This is a great video. I want to close with this. Um, I've been mentioning urban refugees and 60% of the, uh, particularly the ones who have been uh, fleeing the Syrian crisis, have just dispersed into neighboring countries and they're living under the radar, right? So they haven't applied for asylum. asylum. They haven't uh, applied for refugee status. They're just out there and they're just trying to make a new life for themselves living illegally. So you can imagine the tension and the fear and the angst under which a, a family would live. Um, this is a great, a great uh, depiction of that. <laughs> Yes.
ست ايام اول قصف شغال بعد ست ايام بدي شوي الجمل طلعنا بدنا نشوف لقيت خبز ناكلها شغله ست ايام ما بدي حتى اكل عندنا كان ايوه طلعنا يعني البيوت واقعه هيك كثير منظر يعني بتخليك تبكي when President Bashar al-Assad crushed peaceful protests with military force. This war has caused the largest humanitarian crisis since World War II, and there is no end in sight. About 4 million Syrians have fled the country since the war started in 2011. 650,000 have settled in Jordan. I'm Prachi Gupta, senior writer for Cosmopolitan.com. I've traveled to Jordan to learn more about the plight of Syrian refugees and interviewed one family who escaped the conflict and is now living secretly in Amman, where they're struggling to make ends meet. <laughs> 